Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me alongside Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett. Well, we just got finished watching the U.S. game in El Salvador. One, I was going to say 1-1, but everybody else was 1-1. It was 0-0. I guess we'll take it. Fellas, it looked like a hostile environment to play in. Uh, I want to tell everybody, we're going to do a quick review of the game, uh, but also we have an interview with Seamus Mallon coming up after uh, those of you who are over, well, let's say, what, 35 grail? will remember Seamus Mallon <laughs> from, uh, from ESPN, <laughs> from PBS, uh, just for, you know, CONCACAF, Champions League, all that stuff that he used to do. He's retired now. Uh, looks great. We saw him on a Zoom. He's 80 years old, uh, about to turn 81. Uh, looks great, and, and he's all with it, man. It's, uh, it's encouraging to see Seamus, big part of American soccer, uh, we talked a little bit about the progress America has made. And so, guys, tonight, uh, before we get to Seamus's interview, let's talk a little bit about this game today. Um, the first thing that jumped out at me is, first of all, non-soccer related stuff in the sense that <laughs> the camera work was horrible. And you realize that, you know, American companies, whether it's CBS, ABC, uh, NBC, ESPN, I mean, they do games. We're just used to NFL, NBA. Uh, MLS, all these games with all these cameras. And boy, the camera, did you see the one camera angle from behind the goalkeeper that they stayed on for about a minute? It was absurd. I couldn't see anything. Anyway, there's that. And then there's the field conditions. You can tell these guys at this level uh, playing, uh, the field was uh, the kind of fields that we play on on Sundays, kicking it around. Did it, uh, did it bother you that there were 20 foot high fences between the, the fans and the pitch. Yeah, basically, that's armed guards. Was, yeah, no, I felt like there was a middle, uh, a military junta about to take place. Right, right. At, at they the were, event. and I was like, yeah, it's World Cup qualifying. Well, they were, they were, they had the shields, the helmets, the, yeah. you know, the, the backpacks, the you know, the mace. Uh, they had everything there. Apparently, I don't know. You go down to South and Central America, you know, when a player's taking a corner kick, why not throw something at him? I've I've been hit with a few bags of urine and uh, some batteries well, the in my day. Shields came so. in handy. I like the way they protect the the players taking the corner kicks with the shield. Right, so, That's a nice touch. So, Sam, uh, what did you think of the play? Uh, with the yeah, US? I mean, I'll start I with think, the result, which I think is fine. Uh, right. You know, it's the first game of qualifying. I never think a draw away in this situation is a bad thing. You didn't give up a goal. That's also not a bad thing. Uh, I mean, my overall takeaway, the playing conditions could have had a lot to do with this, but essentially it just felt like watching a game. I know this is a very easy thing to say about a zero zero game, but there just wasn't enough quality on either side to unlock what was kind of a choppy, uh, you know, not very fluid game. Um, so that I mean, that's my overall takeaway. Yeah, there's sort of a back and forth. I thought the U.S. should have had one early. They missed a couple of opportunities where they sort of. Well, dominated. yeah, sorry. I, I was going to say, too, the only way it really felt like a goal was going to happen was from a set piece. And that's how yeah. the U.S. came the closest to scoring, as did uh, El Salvador. I was also, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting. There was such an American um, touch on the El Salvadorian team. Hugo Perez. I mean, it's it's amazing watching him on that sidelines product of the States, I guess. Uh, and he and Burhalter have a long term relationship going back to their time in the U.S. men's national team. Well, anyone who has been involved yeah. in the national team on that level uh, from, you know, the younger development ages all the way up knows Hugo. I mean, he was, yeah. uh, you know, he's really instrumental in developing a lot of players. Uh, so, and then the Roll Down brothers, I thought that was a great story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, what, what a journey the Americans have made, you know, Grail since our time where we're actually putting 
national team players on other teams now. You know, exactly. It, it was amazing. Uh, you think about the Klinsman days, wherever he looked, you know, scoured Germany for a for an American player. But uh, what what so what's, what stood out to me is it like it just it felt like it was a step up, you know, as a World Cup qualifier from the games they've been playing, and I felt like they looked a little bit anxious. I, I, I didn't feel we were very, I'm going to just say we, not that I'm being biased here, but that we didn't look terribly composed. And I thought, uh, you know, I just thought overall El Salvador had the better chances. Um, do you really? Well, I do. I think, yeah, I mean, they, they, they had the header that went just over. They had another shot that uh, grazed the bar. Um, and no, I, we missed I, about, we missed three headers. I think that, you know, yeah, one and, yeah, and I just, I just thought overall they were more dangerous and, and, and they just, their point of attack was more dangerous. And again, I just, again, Josh Sargent to me was Charlie Davis was going on about him at halftime. And I was like, are you watching the same game? Cause I didn't think he did anything. Well, I think first of all, Grail, Charlie talked about him before the game. Then you yeah. watched him play in the game. But I think what I noticed about Sargent, you know, he cuts off uh, passing lanes well defensively as a striker, you know, up front. Um, but he seems a tad plodding on the ball. He seems slow to release it. He couldn't get rid of it. I mean, the Peacock, I thought, uh, was more impactful and impactful right away. Yeah. He was quicker. He got to turn on the ball a couple of times. Um, Sargent did some good things. But um, I don't think it's enough. And I think also what Charlie Davis said in the opening was that he knows that that Sergeant had really had to perform. He had to do it. He's running out of opportunities. And, and he I think said tonight, at halftime that he thought that he had stepped up and did it. And I was like, really? Well, he did right before the, the whistle, the halftime whistle. So I, I don't think that's enough, though, unfortunately. I think uh, they also missed Polisic. They could have used that. I thought sure. Dest stayed on the ball a little too long. Couple guys, you know. I thought Aronson was the one young player who was pretty dynamic, who who didn't do it tonight. I thought, yeah. especially in the first half, he was sort mm -hmm. of out of his element. I think the crowd got to him a little bit. You know, the travel. I mean, playing down there is, is extremely difficult. Yeah. Um. And, and you know, Coach Burhalter talked about it over and over in qualifying. You know, as they're heading towards qualifying, the saying, "Look, you got to get ready for these games because." They're pretty intense atmospheres. I, I thought Aronson kind of redeemed himself a little bit in the second half with his work ethic, but um, for the most part, he struggled. He struggled. Yeah, the, the player, our player, to, to me, that was the most composed, and not that he did anything scintillating, but I thought he was very composed, was uh, Reem. I thought, I, again, I think he's good in the middle. You can't put him on the flank because he's not fast enough, but I actually thought his passing and stuff was really good out of the back. Yeah, um, you know, Reem Reem takes a lot of heat uh, yeah. for in social media for some reason. I do not know. I mean, he's a warrior. He's out there. He's a steady presence. Um, with the right configuration, he plays well. Yeah, if he gets caught out wide, it's uh, it's trouble. And he you did, can't put him out wide. Well, you know, he gets caught out there sometimes. So that's uh, that that is interesting. Reina kind yeah. of kind of came in and out of the game mm -hmm. a little bit. He was very Dribbled dangerous. Too much. You what? He dribbled a little too much to me, like the ball. He was just losing the ball. You know, he'd go like. One I think everybody in the midfield lost possession yeah. a ton, and I don't know, you know, what that, what why that was, but um, Weston McKinney uh, seemed like he did a lot of work on and off the ball, but uh, it wasn't his best night. Tyler Adams either, but if if that's a bad performance, it's it's not too bad. I think where the United States sort of struggled a little bit was uh, El Salvador was getting stuck in and and. Uh, you know, cutting down passing angles. 
winning 50 50 balls, winning yeah. second balls. And I think that's really what, what uh, caused the most problem for the United States, why they lacked getting a rhythm. Uh, yeah. because El Salvador did just did not let them build a rhythm. And they were so, physical. I mean, there, there was no doubt. I mean, I didn't think it would get, I didn't think the game got out of control at all, but there was definitely some physicality in there, which you'd expect to, you know, playing at home. I mean, look, there, there's definitely a big edge there. And again, I think the moment, you know, probably rattled some of the U S players a little bit. That's why, yeah, like the final pass was never quite there tonight. I always felt like we'd string together a couple passes and then there would just be a bad next pass, you know? That's still McKenney had a header, uh, Robinson out of the back. Peafuck had one. Um, so there there were chances there. So I, I saw some good stuff. I think we've watched this in games before. Burhalter wants his players to play. He wants them to knock it around. And I think sometimes in a game to relieve pressure, Sam, you probably hate this, is to you know put your boot through the ball, uh, just yeah. just sort of you know or or you know uh, uh, Adu made a comment about um, Yedlin just booting it forward after they had just all tracked back and were tired and that's where you hold it a little bit, get your breath, reload, re you know re put your shape together, and then uh, then take off again. So um, I, I think you can't be disappointed with this. Well, I guess we could be disappointed with this result um, because you, they could have snuck out a win. I thought at the end of the game, El Salvador had. At where it was tired they worked really hard they had a high work mm -hmm. rate and we had more depth on the bench and i thought we were going to maybe sneak one in sneak one in there but our our guys look tired as well yeah, yeah we've think, got a, oh. we've got a score i mean that, that's the thing that like over the course of the qualifying that concerns me is just scoring like i'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where it's going <laughs> to we've got from. a score famous no, no, I'm, no, I'm just saying, there, no there's not a guy up front there's, the, the, we don't have a clint dempsey we don't have a landon donovan we don't have a scorer. We might be able to get some guys scoring from the midfield, but I don't think we have that guy yet. Who's the yeah. scorer? I yeah. think, uh, yeah, Sam, you're going to say something. Well, I think, you know, you're talking about playing and trying to get the, the style going and everything. I think the U S really struggled to play down the middle and whether that was the pitch right. conditions, whether that was the, the way El Salvador was, was shaped. They had that diamond midfield, which made mm -hmm. that a little bit more difficult. Um, I mean, to go back to Aronson, I thought, you know, maybe the moment got to him, but I just thought he was way out of position. I mean, this is the first time I've seen the kid play, but he was playing on the left of a midfield three in the first half and basically looked like he wanted to be playing further up on the left wing, kind of getting in the way of De La Fuente uh, a few times. And then in the second half, they moved him up to right wing. And I thought he was a lot better when he had that space and he was attacking, but he, I, to me, I had no business being in that midfield and he was often getting caught so far forward. He was like completely changing the shape of the team almost into a four, two, three, one. Um, I would say though, if Berhalter's really committed to, you know, playing out of the back and doing this whole thing, like, you know, Adams has to come way, way deeper, almost mm -hmm. in line with the back three or sorry, the back right. two and make that happen, especially with the way El Salvador kept their, you know, attacking center midfielder of that diamond right on him. And he looked like he was afraid to go back for the ball even further. And a couple of times it did get played into him. He was kind of like, you know, why are you giving it to me there? And he almost lost it once. And yeah, but just, did you I, say yeah. like, you know, you know, uh, I've been in that position checking back as a center midfielder and you're, you're, you know, you got a guy in your back. No one's, no one's showing wide. Uh, so it doesn't open up any passing lanes. Yeah. Anymore. That's why I'm saying you have to come all yeah. the way back in line with and the back And you can also line. knock it back. Yeah. Yeah. But McKinney and no, we're talking about the ball being played into the midfielder coming back with his back. No, it's a terrible ball. position to receive the ball. It's right. the worst position right. to receive it. And so I'm saying he's got to, they got to figure that out. Figure that out. Cause not yeah. only Tyler was, 
you know, sort of tossing his hands up a little bit, being, why'd you play me that ball? McKenney yeah. was doing the same thing. I, I kept saying, oh, my God, every ball into McKenney is a hospital ball. And, uh, yeah. you know, he, he did pretty, pretty well. He'd rode the player and, uh, you know, did some good things. But you're right. There was no – it really broke down in the midfield, yeah. I thought. I mean, the, I mean, the other thing I would do, and I've been banging this drum forever, is I would play Dest on the right because that's where Dest plays for Barcelona. That's where he plays all the time, and they insist on putting him on the left, and I just – I think he's better on the right. Well, So I don't know why they can't just find another guy to play on the left. Well, that's, they've been looking for one for years, Grail, yeah. uh, you know, since uh, Chirondolo. So easier said than done. And I think on the outside, you have Yedlin. Yedlin, I thought – Still got the wheels. He still struggles sometimes, though. He really gets caught, uh, you know, out of position at, at times. Desk got caught out of position a bunch, you know, moving forward, holding the ball. Oh, and then yeah. Vulnerable on the counter. He also I, had one great chance where a guy played a through ball to him and he went, he did, didn't trap it. He was right at the 18 yard box. He was kind of through. And I wasn't, I can't remember who kind of put the ball through to him over, you know, over his head and he just put his foot out and kind of whiffed on it, but uh, I missed it. Yeah. yeah. I, so, I think, you know, I think if I had to, and I know Berhalter has a long-term plan here that he doesn't want to mess with. I think watching this game, if I had to make a major change at halftime, I, I would have taken Aronson off certainly. So and I probably would have gone to three at the back because you were both the fullbacks were getting, they, they just seemed like a little bit in between Yedlin and Dest. Should I go forward? Should I not? And then they got cut out a few times. You had John Brooks and Walker Zimmerman on the bench, really good players not to be playing. And I, I just, Aronson did just nothing in the midfield in the first half. And I'm not, I think he was out of position. I'm not blaming him, but, and I think in a game like that, you have a better chance when you're the faster, more physical team and kind of playing down the flank, um, which might not be the long-term strategy we, we want to see, but I think tonight. So Zimmerman's injured, Sam, right? He's no, no, he's, he was, he's in, he was in the bench, you know, as, suited, as yeah, was Brooks. Suited. Yeah. But maybe they're worried about him because he's coming back from injury. So I figured maybe they're giving him a little extra time. Yeah, but he's deeper on the depth chart than the players that started tonight. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I just mean there were options to go with three at the back. Well, because it would usually yeah. be Brooks, but you'd have Brooks and Ream, right? Instead of Robinson and Ream. No, okay. probably Robinson and, and Brooks at this point, I think, is uh, on on his depth chart. Um, okay. Yeah. So, you know, I saw, I saw the same thing with Aronson. And one of the things I thought about was if you take a young player like that out at halftime, a player that mm -hmm. struggled so much, and you act, basically do have him out of position, it gets in his head and you might ruin mm -hmm. him for the rest of the run, you know, into qualifying. So I think in hindsight, put him somewhere where he's a little more comfortable, let him get some mm -hmm. better touches. He worked hard off the ball in that second half. And I think he, in, in many ways, redeemed himself a little bit. And also, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of save a young player from kind of getting into a funk. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although every game means so much that the kind of the counter philosophy to that is, can you afford to let a guy kind of work himself in or do you have to make kind of, you know, short term decisions just to, you know, if you can, like you guys were saying, if you could sneak the win by making some changes, that's a huge three points if you're able to score a goal. Yeah. Right. It, well, it's, well, it's a long journey, you know? Yeah. Uh, and Aronson's done well. You know, this summer he played well and, um, you know, put in some good minutes. So I think, you know, maybe he was just protecting that. And Turner almost had nothing to do. I mean, that's the other thing is that it's not like, I mean, the chances that happened were actually either off the bar or over his head or whatever, but he, I think he about, had to make one save. Yeah, he did had a good down low to his left. But I, I think Zach Steffen is not the starting keeper now. They said, you know, he 
had some problems and so he's hurt again basically so i you know and i think uh turner plays better with distribution uh, yeah i mean I, I find it odd that they almost say like well the u.s was missing zach stefan i'm kind of like not really yeah, <laughs> i mean yeah. I, I i i'm with you i think turner's really the guy at this point right and so uh yeah i agree so uh, you know but especially when you play the ball back to zach stefan i get worried even mm-hmm. though he's playing for man city and they, they play out of the back he's not playing well, that often you he know? thinks he's ederson sometimes he likes to play that ball like right up the gut Right. Which so, is a okay. very dangerous ball. So, uh, zero zero, we grab a point away in El Salvador, a hostile environment. Uh, but so we'll take it. I guess we'll take yeah. it. And, and pretty much all the other results in, you know, in the, the uh, tournament so far were all 1 1, except for Mexico, which squeaked out a win. Poor Jamaica. They're playing in Azteca down there. And, uh, you know, they were 1 1 for a long time. Well, there. Yeah. well only, so only Canada and Honduras was 1 1. Panama and uh, Costa Rica finished 0 0. And then Mexico beat Jamaica 2-1. And a 0-0. I okay. feel like 0-0 is a very typical opening World Cup qualifying score. Like historically, if we looked at all of the openers, there would be so many nil-nil draws, right? I think you're right, especially when you're away and you're playing for yeah. a, a you know a draw sometimes. But I think the hopes uh, and expectations for this team were so high that we were going to you know grab three points in El Salvador. We were we outgunned them and yet we we couldn't pull it off. So um next game is when sam it's tuesday i'm putting you on the spot i don't know it's uh um, I, I have them all written down and somewhere but not in front of me so we have um canada next i believe i don't have the schedule in front of me right now but and canada's um, tough canada is tough so yeah. uh you know and they, they've gotten better and better and they've this nice you know north american rivalry now we have mexico on one side of us canada on the other side of us uh mls is strengthening everybody everybody's squad so uh tough times. so so we have canada on sunday yeah. uh 8 p.m which is already i mean we're recording this actually early friday mornings so that's only three days away and then uh we have honduras on wednesday so yeah, it's okay. you know I actually wasn't surprised by El Salvador either, honestly, just reading all the press that's been leading up to this match and the Hugo Perez connection and stuff like that. I mean, they, they, they were coming into the tournament playing really well. So well, one thing about Perez is he's a great coach and he gets the most out of his players. Did you see him flip the ball? Oh, up there I saw that, the buddy. Oh, yeah. That was, that was vintage Hugo all, Perez. All I kept so. saying to myself was, Greg Burhalter, please don't try that. No, 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 no. Not at all. <laughs> all right, guys. So, uh, so that's the review for for this game. Um, you know, let's hope on to Canada. A better results, Santa. Oh, Canada. Um, all right, so let's uh, take a break, and uh, we have a great interview with Seamus Mallon. Like I said, just a great guy, a real recontour of uh, just walking, talking American soccer history, and he knows uh, the world's game as well. Uh, you know, born in Ireland and lived in London, lived in Boston for many years. Now he's uh, retired out in New Mexico. So it was great to talk to him and some of the stories he has uh, he has to share. So stick around. You're listening to Over the Balls special uh, post-US El Salvador game. All right. You know, I was reading uh, one of our sponsors, Soccer America, had a great article by Ian Plenderlife uh, talking about the, our next guest. Uh, you know, so much soccer on television now, uh, but you know, you kids out there, there was a day when it was slim pickings. You had to you had to search high and wide uh, to find some soccer on television, and whether it was PBS or ESPN or uh, the Cosmos, it was always this man. I got to meet him; uh, was basically one of my idols in 1994 when I met him. I was completely starstruck, 
And uh, he took me under his wing, and we worked together on the 94 World Cup for ESPN. Joining us now on Over the Ball, Mr. Seamus Mallon. Seamus, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Doing very well. I've uh, put a few years on the tires, but in fact, <laughs> believe it or not, tomorrow is my 81st birthday. Ah, uh, that's the 81 uh, years young. Well, you, you're Irish, uh, so you don't age that badly. You, you age well. Happen? How did that no, no. happen? It, it, but uh, you know what? I'll tell you this. I played last year in my alumni soccer game. Did you really? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to play in my alumni soccer game uh, this coming uh, next weekend. Yeah. And uh, I'm worried about yeah. it already. I'm stretching out, you know, two weeks ahead of time. I'm Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to mine in October and I've started uh, – I hired a trainer two days ago. I'm not joking. <laughs> Good for you. I'm serious. Well, 81 is minutes. not 81 anymore. It's, uh, 80, I know. It's 20, like minutes, 20 minutes. Is, uh, I planned myself 20 minutes. My, my, my partner, Meredith, when she came to the game last year, um, I came off the field and she said to me, she's gotten to know me a little bit. She said, you know, you made four passes with your left foot. <laughs> wow. I said, wait a minute. Let me, let me correct that. I completed four passes with my left foot well, which you're is already ahead of a, an, an ornamental appendage usually well, you're, you're already ahead of uh, beckenbauer then you know <laughs> you, you, really used it. So you and i you know i think you and i uh in 98 too i think played in the yes uh, we played, played in together in the field in france we played in france that's right that's right i got yeah. a PK. I, I missed a pk it was terrible <laughs> <laughs> you see you never you never forget those things well, so anyway you know, you're retired now. You were, you know, yeah. just looking over your resume, how busy you were. You were working at Harvard in the administration office and in the international um, office yeah. as well. Um, but you would do these games. And I used to say you were great at it because you were, you were very uh, entertaining, but professorial in the sense that you were explaining the game to a good portion of America that was seeing soccer for the very first time. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, you were really kind of where it all began as far as television is concerned, whether it was PBS or ESPN. And what about now? You're in retirement. You're in, in uh, New Mexico. There's tons of games to watch. It must feel good to yeah. be, have been a part of that. It is actually, uh, you're quite right. I mean, on two levels. One is that you don't have to go to an obscure bar in some dangerous part of the city to watch, you know, a, a big match from South America, let's say. In Spanish, which I don't speak, um, I have to say the more re the more rewarding piece of it, though, Kevin, is that is to see and hear the guys now on TV who really played in the World Cup. You know, that, I mean, we've we've moved on to the next generation right. of announcers. So people say to me, "Do you miss it?" I said, "No, I don't miss it." It gets you know, there comes a point where you have to call it quits, anyhow. But I feel good about the voices I'm hearing and the analysis in particular is what I care about by youngish guys, but who have played, you know, in these world cups and who are still making a contribution to American soccer in their own way. A lot of these wonderful guys from 94, 98 are in coaching, yeah. which is more important, frankly. Um, but a few of them too, who are giving, you know, their, their analysis of what, what, what it's really like to be playing at this level at this time. And, you know, we just didn't have that perspective in there. So there's no room really for a voice like mine in the best sense anymore because the next generation is here appropriately. Well, you were, you were Irish, but your accent was sort of uh, softened um, by living in the United States for so long, probably <laughs> hanging around the Ivy-covered yeah. campus of Harvard. 
Um, (laughs) You know, most of us were, were, I'm encouraged because it seems 94 is an interesting um, place because it sort of was the birth of soccer in many ways, the modern game here in this country. And they were a unique group of guys. They really played passionately and and loved it. They were Pied Pipers of the game as well. But I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm happy there. It's, we always had to listen to an English accented voice uh, all the time. And now uh, I think we have these, you know, Lexi and, and all these other players who are who are on air now. So uh, you know, and you used to work with um, Tai Kio a lot. You know, and Tai who I thought had yeah. an interesting perspective. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I haven't. T- we try to stay in touch with Tai. I haven't talked to him in a year or so, but we do exchange um, emails and, and keep up to that. Bob Lee also is from that era, and Bob and I are just the best of buddies. And he's he's likewise retired, um, and he you know he came to it. I mean, if you want to talk about the differences, he came to it from being the public address announcer at Giant Stadium. Yeah. And uh, I would talk to him about that. And he said, oh, he said, I, I can't remember how many times I had to say, "Here, all right, boys and girls, here comes Bugs Bunny. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the tie in with Warner Brothers and the Cosmos and Grail and I, right. you know, we kind of grew up on those games, going yeah. to those games and and hearing, uh, you know, those announcements. Uh, Grail. Right. Yeah, uh, Seamus, it's a real honor having you join us. Um, just going, you. going in the way back machine to those early NASL games that you did, um, you know, I was just remembering um, the fact that the game would just be interrupted mid-action with ads. All sorts of kind of crazy stuff was going on. And when you look back on it, you can't even believe that that's the way it was being presented. I'm just curious what kind of how you think everything's evolved since then and how much, you know, the improved broadcast experience has really helped, you know, not only drive the viewership, but the interest in the sport overall. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, it's sort of, there are a lot of cringe moments back in those <laughs> right. days, you know, when you, you know, you, the producer would come into your headset when the ball goes flying into the crowd and say, all right, that's a goal kick. That'll take 20 seconds. We're going to commercial. So you roll in a 30-minute commercial and just pray that nothing happened in the game. Uh, I mean, that seems absolutely inconceivable right now. Um, and um, so, so we've gotten away from that. But I think it's also what, what, what's gone parallel side by side with it is that the audience has changed. Um, I mean, the audience in those days, particularly for the Cosmos games, was a heavy mixture of sort of new Americans or ethnic Americans who, you know, who loved the game and who saw some of the best players in the world playing. So they came. And the guys like uh, John Harks, who was, you know, in high school, uh, these guys, in, uh, Harksy and Miola and those guys, those the Jersey boys were in the stands. Yeah. Um, and that's where they saw the game, you know, at a, at a very different level from what they were used to playing. So now what's happened is the population has evolved to the point where the latter kind of people really is more dominant than the, you know, the, the immigrant folks whom we desperately depended on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, as I said in the article, some of those fanatic Lazio fans used to come to Giant Stadium to boo Canalia. because because he left he left Rome he left Lazio to come to you know make a lot of money in America and they thought he was you know a charlatan but he wasn't he was a great leader he scored a ton of goals he inspired a lot of kids so so the so the population has evolved I think 
alongside it. So now you can have, you know, the kind of the Sam's, what we used to call the Sam's army crowd and, and you know, the, the organized fan base and so forth. That was inconceivable, frankly, back in 94 and 98. Very different. Sam? Yeah, uh, great to see you again, Seamus. Uh, I'm curious, looking at college soccer a little bit, you, yeah. know, where you worked at Harvard, uh, you know, back in the day. And uh, I'm just curious what your take on the growth of that game has been and how you've seen that yeah. evolve over time. Well, it has evolved. Uh, you know, it's, I, I blow hot and cold on this, Sam. I, I, um, there are times when I think, you know, the college game is, is, is good. It's nice. It's interesting. It's a great experience for a bunch of guys. But truly, really and truly, we're now at a level where we're trying to build a national team that in a lot of ways might be bypassing the college game. Um, you know, if you look to see who our players are at the moment, the younger ones are all in Europe, you know, they're, and they're young. They're not just 25, they're 19 and 20 and so forth and so on. And, uh, you know, the, 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 real, the real politique part of me says, that's the way to go. Now, right. uh, the college coach in me says uh, the college experience has so much more to it than just training on how to, to play the ball with the outside of your foot. I mean, it has a collegiate experience as an education component that's invaluable. Um, but I think in a funny way, even though the college game has become better for Americans and the quality of Americans coming out of the schools is better, the actual road to the upper level is not quite as is as evident to me as it used to be i mean the teams we put on the field in 88 and 90 uh, 92 were essentially college teams college all-star teams with a few exceptions here and there you know well that's not the case anymore you never see a college player on the national side anymore except maybe under 18s or something like that so um while it's nice to see <clears throat> the quality of individuals improve over the years. I don't think it has progressed linearly um, uh, because some of the quality at the top is bypassing it for, you know, understandable reasons, the way they do around the rest of the world. I agree. And I, I think, you know, for a long time, the United States was a model because, you know, in England, you go through that, the, uh, you know, the, uh, you're the young player in the locker room, you're not really being educated anymore. You're trying to become a professional. But in here in the States, we used to have college education and the cream would rise and then uh, they would they would go into the pros if you actually could make it into the pros, right? And most don't. Um, and that wasn't doing it. It just seems to me, and we've talked about this on the show before, it seems like uh, the Americanization of soccer has really hurt it in college levels where they uh, don't let them train year round. They, you know, it's really, a, you know, uh, I mean, we, when I played at UMass, we'd play at Harvard, you jump on a bus, drive all the way there on a, on a Monday. And then on Wednesday or Thursday, you'd play in a second game, you know? Uh, yeah. So it wasn't you'd had no time for training during the season and to, to do your schoolwork. Not that I would do that part, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think, I think, you know, I guess my, my question is, it feels to me like the NCAA has, stepped stood in the way of progress for soccer because it's a different type of sport it's not like football where you, you can only play two months a year and then train all year or basketball yeah. you can sort of play all year I, it just doesn't seem to fit anymore and i hope they well, open their eyes a little bit yeah and you know can that's in a in a way <laughs> in line with with the tradition of the struggles of the college game i mean you 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 and your listeners may be amazed to hear this when i came to america in 1958 
and I played freshman soccer because in those days, freshmen were not eligible for the varsity right. team. And, and actually that wasn't so bad. Um, right. I had uh, overnight 25 new freshman friends in college, just like that. And yeah. it was a great transition for me. I mean, I literally, I came off a boat, <laughs> you know, I came with <laughs> my all, family. We all did, yeah. You know, yeah. I came off the boat when I was on my 18th birthday. I arrived in New York on the boat and with my family. And two weeks later, I was playing freshman soccer. And, and I instantly made these wonderful friends, some of whom are still dear friends to this day. But when I look at that roster of kids, 23, 24 of the 26 were from private schools. Right. Okay. Yeah. There were two kids from a public school. So it was a preppy game in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, the coaches of college soccer had done some abominable things. For instance, there were no throw-ins. Right, really? Oh my no, God, I haven't heard no. that. From the sideline, the ball went out into touch. It was a, an indirect free kick. Um, the penalty areas were semicircular. They weren't, yeah, they weren't parallelogram. It was a semicircular. And the reason was, for the first one, um, the American coaches felt American kids couldn't throw properly. They'd throw like it was a baseball. So they'd be doing illegal throws all the time. And the second reason, uh, they had a penalty area, <laughs> at like, a semi, like a field hockey penalty area, right. uh, was because the American coaches thought it was a disproportionately heavy price to pay, i.e. a penalty kick, if you tackled somebody at the top edges of the penalty area. Yeah, so there's I mean, our... Did you yeah. not? I mean, this is the kind yeah. of stuff you have to put up with. And then this in and out substitution. The one thing that continues to kill the game, I think, at the college level is the substitution rule. Yeah, you know, platoon this, substituting, yeah. Yeah, this, sub, this first half, second half differentials and people flowing in and flowing out. It just doesn't prepare you for the world game. And, and mm -hmm. uh, so that, that, that still, I think, holds people back. But that said, I think the, the average quality of the American players is, in college is better. Um, yeah. And they still are bringing, you know, they're not bringing, I don't see quite as many international players on teams as we used to. I mean, that's the way, when I was coaching at Harvard in the 80s, I mean, the 70s and 80s, and we went to the final four, twice in three years, the core of our team were international players. Right. I think, you know, Harvard was able to pull some international players for obvious reasons. And yeah. It, it seemed like, Seamus, I hear your point, it was mostly foreign players. And uh, when I was playing in college, there were a lot as well. That sort of seemed to recede a bit. Yeah. But yeah. now it has actually started to come back in the last uh, couple has. of years. Yeah. yeah. Marshall, yeah. you know, won the national championship. And I think they had uh, everyone but one or two players were, were foreigners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again. Well, I think, you know, the, the theory, it wasn't as planned as I'm making it sound, but the player theory was you wanted a good central core. You wanted a center half, a center midfield, and a center forward. If you, you, know, if you can get that core of people who've been in that, the rough end. But look at it the other way. From, um, there's a guy for, playing in England right now, playing for Leeds, called Bamford. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just made the England, he just made, he's made his first call-up. And he's 26 years of age, I think. And he's a smart guy. His father is a billionaire, they say. Now, I think that's really? a bit of an exaggeration. That may be not true. But he's supposed to be, you know, he's one of these scholar athlete types. 
And uh, he was recruited by Harvard uh, here. And I, I didn't spoke to anybody at Cambridge about this. And um, he had a choice to make, and he opted for throwing his hat in the ring to make it as a pro. And, and he's good. He's a scorer. He's, Very he's good. Scorer. I, I like to watch him play. And yeah, my father was a, a billionaire. Why go to college anyway? And, you know, <laughs> then there's also uh, Jack Harrison, who did go to prep school here uh, yes. at Berkshire. Yeah. And That's then, right. And now he's playing as well, at least, and yeah. doing quite well. So, yes, yeah. uh, yeah. it's nice to see different tracks because you don't know how players are going to develop. So right. I think there's a lot of options for good players today that that weren't around before. Well, I, I, We had some kids from Scotland for not a lot, but <laughs> I'll tell you one story. I, I, we admitted a guy from Scotland um, who was related to Charlie Nicholas, who played for Glasgow Celtic and Arsenal and so forth. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, I, I, you know, I never laid eyes on the guy. And um, preseason, there was always some tryouts and we would play some, some pickup matches to, to, to cut the squad. So I went down to one of these and I said, I got to see who is this guy? Where is he? And then I said, I, I can't, I don't recognize him. I'm not seeing this photo. And then there was a kind of a 60, 40, 60 ball in the middle of the field. And he went flying and took everything with him. Was that that's my? That's boy. the guy. Yeah, kick <laughs> kick anything that moves. If it doesn't move, kick until it, it does move. <laughs> Real? Yeah, uh, Seamus, you had such a unique perspective uh, in terms of seeing the birth and then the ultimate demise of uh, the NASL. And I'm just curious, you know, yeah. where where you think it went wrong, and then conversely with with. Uh, MLS, which is now, you know, at 25 plus years, Don Garber seems to have done a good job. What has yep. been done better this time around? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that the, the simplistic and maybe uh, the simple analysis, that was a league built from the top down. Yeah. MLS, I think, to be fair, is a league built from the bottom up. I mean, it started uh, on, a, on a more firm basis and went through some real growth pains, as you well know, and it was hanging on by threads, MLS was. And thanks to some some leadership in terms of money and some people who stepped up uh, and kept it afloat, but the NASL was always um, uh, it was because it was so foreign. I mean, it wasn't it was non-American. If you rem if you recall, I'm sure you do that the requirement that you had to have three North American players on the field at all right. time, but Canadians counted. As North Americans, Mexicans did, to be fair, but 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 the northern the Canadians did. So I remember having a discussion the other day with about the Cosmos goalkeeper and I say, why did Jack Brand, you know, continue to play? And he said, well, he was a guaranteed Canadian. That was one down, two to go, you know, and, and to, to keep the thing. So it was built from the top. Yeah, it was tough. Um, the leadership was the Cosmos, obviously. Um, but and that inspired other places like Minnesota had great attendances, Portland had great, Seattle had great attendances, um, Washington DC had a quite good team for a while in terms of attendance. But it was all built on a kind of a showbiz background. I mean, Warner Communications drove the cosmos, and you always worried what, a, what if something happens to Warner Communications' other properties. How, how would the, you know, the money spenders and the watchers and the bean counters say, what are we doing with this $6 million toy that we're playing with? And, okay, so we had 60,000 people. In June of 1978, the Cosmos had 60,000 people at six home games. 
in a row. 60,000, mm-hmm. yeah. six home games in a row. And, and then the, the final one was, you know, in August when they had 78,000, they had more uh, at, at that game than ever had been in Giants Stadium for anything ever, you know, right. including you know, the New York Twins. So, so it was built, but it was built on that very, like plaything of plaything of Warner Communications and the Erchkin brothers and Steve Ross, who saw it, you know, as a great enhancement of their business approach. Uh, and but not everybody that didn't fly in Tulsa, you know. Right, right. But, you well, know. that was why Bob Lee was pushing Bugs Bunny at the uh, stadium all the time because right. it just sort of you know cross pollination with their other. With their other things, you know, that's uh, right. and but you know, you, you come back to a point that's right around when Grail and I were kind of coming up. Whether you know you're a good college player and you're trying to go into the pros, and boy, as an American, you, you really couldn't get a sniff. It seemed to be the only American who would get one would be kind of a project that someone would take on, like right. on Steve Moyers or Rick, uh, Ricky Davis. Rick Davis, yeah, yeah, yeah Rick yeah. Davis really. They made him the poster boy, and a lot of pressure on Rick. He's been on the show before, um, and he's a big part of American soccer because he represented yeah. us for a long time there. Yes, yeah. But And I thought Team America was a good idea in D.C. for a while to have the American guys play together as a unit uh, to be yeah. better prepared. Uh, and you were covering the, the league then as well, right? That's right, yeah. That was a big gamble in a way, and not without controversy. And right. they put some of the Americans in a very tough spot because some of them actually felt they were on the right track with their home team, you know, and, and should they uh, you know, essentially turn down Team America in order to advance their own game and finance, frankly, because they might have been on better contracts. Certainly the guys of the Cosmos had a lot of thoughts about whether they should abandon New York where they were hanging on by a thread to a playing position but their checks but were had, cashing right i mean like jeff durgan yes, you know exactly yes players. yes yes right no no they would i would you know giorgio Quinalia, who was the you know the the eminence grease of the administration there and he's the <laughs> yeah, guy he ran the show man he, yeah he ran the show you know he, i i would overhear him say mumbling you know in the locker room about player x or player y and and he would say something like giving the money this guy's on he's got to do better and he was he wasn't talking about disappointing foreigners he was talking about the american kids whom he wanted to succeed right right but he was always as a business guy a little suspicious of people being on a nice ride in fact i used to talk to one of the trainers at the cosmos who'd say player x has got it just right he's number he's number 13 on the team he sits on the bench he cashes a fat check and he never gets out to play and be booed by the American hey, right. <laughs> you know, he's, he's got it just right. <laughs> you know, uh, I had got some advice from my, you know, one of my college coaches, Kevin Welsh, who had, uh, was a Jersey oh, yeah. boy as well yeah, and, and played in the yeah. NASL for years. And yeah, a bit yeah. of advice played he gave me. New, played with the New England team. In. The team in and then a little yeah. bit for the dips. And yeah. uh, he said, you know, guys try to come on to it to try it and they try to completely wow everybody with goals and all kinds of things. He goes, find the best player on the field, win the ball, get it to him. Just keep getting yeah. the ball. He said, that's how we made it in D.C. because he said uh, Cruyff was there and he just every time he got the ball, he got it to Cruyff. Cruyff walks into the locker room and goes, uh, that guy, he gets it. I want him on. Get him on. <laughs> I said that was great advice. That was great advice to hear. And it's kind yeah. of, on, you know, you're the same right. point there. Well, let's um, see. I had a coach in England who said, you know, the, he says, the formula is, son, listen to me, son. 
win the ball and give it to someone who can play. Same same formula. The same formula, right? You know. Well, when you're in the uh, the national team plays tonight, uh, so uh, yeah. after this interview, but uh, what are your thoughts on the national team and how you've watched them progress? I mean, look, you were there before '94. You know, I was. Yeah. I mean, I was in the mix in in '84, but boy, a lot <laughs> has changed since then. Even. Um, you know, everybody yeah. went with, you know, college players except that year, 84. But um, but 94, like you said, we're suddenly on a mark. You get to really recognize these players. They've changed the broadcasting industry, these players. Yeah. They've changed the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And now you see this new crop of kids who a lot of them probably don't even know who a lot of those players were. Absolutely. I think that, I mean, that's one of the enigmas of the game in our country. Um, first of all, we have, it's a huge country. We have so many distractions and sporting distractions that, that are in your face all the time. Yeah. Phenomenal yeah. basketball players, baseball players, and so forth and so on. Um, and it isn't that means that they're taking people away from soccer, but it's what dominates the air. Uh, and, and the soccer players are better and better, particularly the women, because of that whole attraction of the women's game and the success at the yeah. women's level. Um but uh, these guys, uh, I think a lot of their role models are overseas. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're seeing the international game every bit as much as they're seeing MLS on TV. And they're, you know, from age 14, 15, these guys have been wearing, you know, replica shirts from the Bundesliga and from uh, the Premiership and all that sort of stuff. So their focus is more worldwide. Now, I think that's great. You know, I mean, that, right. that's... Let's be honest, that's where the best players in the world are. And if you're going to, you know, if you're going to be a basketball player, you you model the, the NBA. If you want to be a soccer player, yeah, MLS is great for sure. But you tend to look at what's thrown up in front of you at the highest level. And that's, you know, Barcelona when it was Barcelona uh, and Bayern and, and Man City and all that kind of stuff. And these kids, you know, they all have those replica shirts, but they also have kind of a psyche at this right. point that pulls them into the game uh, worldwide. And that is absolutely brilliant as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's, if that's all we did before the, my pass on, I would say, fine, work, the job is done. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not quite done. Now this team, um, I don't, you know, I, I, I follow it reasonably well. I don't live on every decision. I stay away from the chat rooms because that's, those are populated uh, by yeah. clearly people who are a little <laughs> off the charts. <laughs> say the least. <laughs> you know, some of the opinions I see flying there, I say, my Lord, what do you, what do, you do with the rest of your time? Um, uh, so I, I, I don't have great arguments about who should be playing left back and who should not be. The thing that's so, so satisfying to me is that we have choices. Mm. We have choices now. We have a pool yeah. where we have some choices. Now, they're, they're not seasoned pros a lot of them will make mistakes that seasoned pros won't make but they have the tools to become seasoned pros at a much higher rate than any other group i've ever seen before right and there's a group of but you know we used to know who all the national team players were in the pool now there seems to be surprises every week it seems yeah He's yes. got 45 guys that he's pulling from now. And the one thing I was, I was impressed and, and could be eating my words is uh, this is going on after the game, but uh, there was in their last couple of outings this summer, they, they, they had that old determination that those older teams had, but they yeah. had a skill set as well. And 
what I always waited for, sort of a cocky American swagger to their game, yeah. which is, which right. is a, a nice combination. So uh, Yeah, yeah. I, but also a composure. I mean, you know, the, the pros will tell you when you're, you're, you're a Cosmos player and, and you're trying to encourage a talented American, one of the things you want to ingrain them is just as we used to say in the ethnic leagues, tranquilo, you know, I mean, you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the whole notion of get your head up. Don't, you know, get into the game so that you're not thinking about getting into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have more and more players now who naturally are sort of look like players. And, and you know, I used people sort of thought I was nuts when I said this, I'm, I'm not sure I still believe it, but the, when, when Landon Donovan appeared on the scene, Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was, you know, still, still in the game at that point. But, and I said to myself, you know, this is the first, as Archie Bunker would say, regular American, not a guy who comes from a, you know, Marcelo Balboa kind of background, right? but, uh, you know, <laughs> a real really, Americana is yeah. the first guy that I saw play that I couldn't be sure he was American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, right, and right. why is that? I found out later. He played in the ethnic leagues in LA as a kid. Yeah. Okay, and if you want to have that inculcation of tranquilo and the field, that's where you get it. In many yeah. ways, you know, it which not, means a lot. Not in the buzz know. of high school soccer, which is boom, 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 you know, this kind of stuff. Right, exactly, and you don't even know that that other game exists—the game of skill right. and uh, right. tranquilo. Right. Sam. Yeah, uh, building off this a little bit, Seamus, uh, in the interview with Soccer America, you were talking about America being, you know, kind of a funny market and how the, the, the Latino influence we definitely see at the MLS level, but maybe yeah. not. And there's been, you know, some criticism of this, maybe not as much on the national team um, at the college level. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, how, how you kind of see the Latino influence here, where it where it's helping, yeah, it's, where, you know, where it could be improved. Yeah. Right. It's a vexing issue, isn't it? And it's it's certainly something that my old friend Paul Gardner has flogged away at for years and years and years. Right. Interestingly, not so much lately. And I've, I've, I haven't spoken to Paul in a while. And um, I'm a, bit, a little bit surprised because uh, by him in the sense that our national team has become a bit more Latino, you know, uh, and uh, I think it's time to say well done. And African-American as well, Seamus. I mean, because we we had Desmond Armstrong on last week talking about, you know, he was the lone, you know, I said every every, uh, player of color that I played with in soccer generally at that higher level was either Colombian or or Nigerian or Haitian. You know, Desmond was a true American-American, born here, raised here. And now we do see that. And uh, you even mentioned it in the article in Soccer America about Dallas has performed, you know, they've put a lot of great players together. And that goes back to the NASL days. That's right. Yeah. So, so um, I, I, it's been disappointing to me that we have not found the formula yet, or we're beginning to now, to incorporate the, some of that wonderful Hispanic passion for the game. And it's, I mean, one of the ways where it's still up in the air is you see these kids wrestling with whether they should go play for Mexico or the U.S. Yeah, amazing. You know, or, you know, and, and in the old days, that was a non-issue, uh, you know. And now, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't ever questioned. You know, no one had yeah, that choice. Yeah, yeah, I know. And now here all of a sudden we're saying, you know, and, you know, the Mexican League is a damn good league. 
uh, and should they go play there or MLS? And as, as you just said a moment ago, MLS has benefited from a, 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 its quality, frankly, from a lot of good players with Latin background. And, and But we're getting there, I think, more productively in the last five years than in the previous 35. Yeah, and I think, you know, as an American, this this melting pot, which we are, it's good to see just faces of, of you know, white, black, uh, Latino, you know, everything. So it's sort of, uh, this is who we are. I used to say that, you know, they said, uh, soccer is uniquely American in the sense that we are a melting pot. And so our style yeah. is starting to, to come out a little bit because of its people, you know, and all the influence that we have. But I tell you what, you were the original influence, Seamus, when we get to watch <laughs> you on, uh, you know, PBS and ESPN all those years ago now these young kids I, I know i sound like an old man but uh they have so many opportunities to to yeah. watch players to see what greatness is to all these moves and deeks and things you can do with the ball that i never even imagined uh were, yeah. were doable i, I think that. that's absolutely true and they can see it happening in the fields around the world i mean i mm -hmm. i watched ronaldo play yesterday i watched the whole game mm -hmm. and ronaldo might have been in the he might have been in the locker room you know, playing with his computer for all that he did mm -hmm. until, okay. until the two crosses in the 90th and 96th minute and reminded me of one of the great expressions that Giorgio Quinalia used to have because Giorgio would have games like that. And he would say, at the death of the game, I live. <laughs> wow, there's a little God complex. I love that, man. Isn't that great? You know, Seamus, that's what we love about goal scorers. You know, they can not track back or pick up their man for 90 right. minutes, but if they put one in the back of the net in the 90th, right. we're all happy. We're fine. We forget everything. Well, yeah, that's oh. right. And he would, I mean, I was thinking if you're a Man U fan and you watched that game, you'd say, oh, I'm not so sure. Was this a good idea? And mm -hmm. then you go, oh, yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> you, know, yeah, you get him the last six minutes, you go, that'll do. In Fergie time, he will rally. <laughs> hey, so that'll, that'll be fun to watch. You know, the Premier League's, uh, you know, NBC does a great job and we've enjoyed it so much. But that's uh, it's one of the things yeah. I was hoping Messi went to Man City because I would love to just see him play uh, yeah. more games regularly, you know. Right. Uh, but you just you just dropped a sentence there that I, I don't want to let drop. You said NBC is doing a great game. NBC has been magnificent. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole step forward of a huge degree to get that much coverage, that much attention with good quality people on the air week after week after week. Um, I mean, I, I just find them to be, to be tremendous. And the commitment to all the games, I mean, that's just that has transformed the, the, the horizon for the kids in this country, too. Right. You know, look, when you were doing it, it, the, it would it would come to you guys on the air and the ball would be at the, at the halfway line. They'd be getting ready to kick off, basically. Yeah. You know, to start right. it. It was like there was no pregame. There was no anything. Right. And, and when I was at ESPN in 94, I remember with the World Cup, we actually had the ability to start to do some stories about the players that you were about to see on the field. So it wasn't right. just 20, you know, two dots on there. It was these right. guys, you got to know, you know, Claudia a little bit or, or Lexi or yeah. all these guys, Hargsy. So right. I think when people know who's out there, uh, you, you begin to get a vested interest in it. And I think that's what they do with that good lead time that they have uh, talking about the players and the team yeah. and the management and everything else. So it's been, uh, yeah. it's been quite a group. Well, you know, they have people on the air who have credibility. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, much more than I had. I mean, I was just, fell into this stuff and in a very funny way, but, but these are guys who have been on the field and who have, you know, been kicked kicked around by some, some tough characters. 
they have credibility um, in, a, in a big way. And Robbie, do you know Robbie Musto? Have you met Robbie Musto? No, we haven't met Robbie. No, we haven't okay. had him on. I'd love to. Yeah, okay. yes, you could, because he's a fascinating guy. You know, he's a he's not from the glamour side of the game. He, he toiled away in Sheffield and Middlesbrough and places like that. And then he was assistant coach at BC. Was he really? I don't know if he knew that. Know. Yeah, he lives in Lex. He lived in Lexington, Massachusetts, for quite a while. He was assistant coach at BC, and um, he um, he's a very bright guy in his own right, and I think very observant. And I think it has really grown dramatically on television in the last uh, three or four years. So put him on your list. Um, yeah, we'll get his contact yeah. information when we get off. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, look, a lot of us looked up to you who got into the game. So uh, it's uh, been an honor to kind of become yeah. your friend and uh, to have you on this show all these years later. Um, yeah, you know, it's great. Some- it's great. Because That's 94 great. was just a wonderful time for us to have that game. And, you know, you mentioned it in the article again uh, from Soccer America. Yeah. All your English friends sort of looking down on how we got the World Cup. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. the numbers were through the roof. Uh, right. And it still I have not been surpassed. Still, still, still a record. Surpassed. So good stuff. We have another World Cup coming up, Seamus. So let's enjoy that one yeah. as we, uh, <laughs> we get to watch it in a few years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seamus Mallon, uh, it's been wonderful to get caught up with you and talk to you. And glad you're doing so well. You look you look great, man. And you're actually going to, you're still playing at times. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm going to give him one more go. One more go. <laughs> <laughs> boy. Good stuff. Well, Seamus Mallon. Thanks for joining us on Over the Ball, my friend. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, how great is Seamus, guys? It was great to get uh, caught up with him. Brings me back memories to 94 when I met him. And I, I, you know, he laughed it off. But I'm telling you, when I met him, I, I felt like I was, you know, doing a movie role with with uh, George Clooney. I was like, you know, or Harry Hugh, you know, Grant. It was like, Jesus, Seamus Mallon. Doing those, doing, doing those Cosmos games on WOR TV Channel 9. I'll never forget it. And and don't go to the bathroom because you may miss a goal. Right. And, <laughs> and Grail, you know, he was talking about those 60,000 person games, like five oh, yeah. in a row and then a 78,000. I mean, we were at some of those. I games. was at the 78. I yeah. was there and I drove and I got in a massive traffic jam coming from Connecticut. And it took us about two and a half hours to get there because you remember the old giant stadium. And it was just the, the, the most difficult place to get to. But what an event to be at. 78,000. I mean, how amazing. To get in and to get out. I think Pele and Mick Jagger used to come in on a helicopter. Probably. The they really did. <laughs> yeah, they I know. Out in the parking lot. Bob Lee told me that story. And then well, they Steve said, Ross, know. Steve Ross, who owned Warner Brothers, was such a big, you know, everything was all about sizzle. It was all Warner Brothers and sizzle, right? Well, it worked. It worked. Yeah. You had 78,000 people. And Sam, it was great to reconnect with uh, Seamus. He remembered you. Took you on a Yeah, trip I, I can't believe he remembered me. He was very kindly took me around ESPN when I was still uh, in college. Kind of showed me the whole soccer set up there what the whole scene was you might have even been around kevin at that point who knows might have mm-hmm. might have been introduced like where waldo for god's sake um i thought his comments on the uh the early days of college soccer when he was playing were were really funny um mm-hmm. first off i like and have proposed on this show the idea of the semicircular um goalie box so i don't think that's so crazy so <laughs> right well, you've also <laughs> proposed the ncaa final four tournament or what the open college tournament right yeah that's yeah. that's a better idea even um <laughs> but then the other thing that i thought was oh, really wait funny, though, let me just comment on okay, that, yeah, because yeah, before my time and even before your time grail it was that way uh he mentioned everybody was preppy the prep schools played soccer and- yeah well it was that way here not nowhere else in the world 
No, no, I'm, that's what we're talking about. So yeah. here, they were everybody. He said he went to Harvard, and there all the Americans were kind of prep school kids. You mm-hmm. know, Harvard, go figure. But uh, that's who was playing soccer. St. Louis did have the that sort of good American soccer player because, you know, all the Catholic schools didn't have a football team, so they had soccer. And then New Jersey had the ethnic element, and then so. Well, St. Louis had a heavy Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's but, where Yogi Berra grew up. So. That's baseball, girl. But yeah, anyway, no, I'm no, I'm saying Italian sports guys. Right. So then, Sam, what what did, what did you want to finish? Well, with? I thought the throwing thing was really funny. That oh, yeah, uh, you know, know, the coaches didn't think Americans would know how to throw properly. You know, one because the long throw has become such a staple of you know American college soccer, and two, as Grail, I'm sure you can attest to having spent time playing abroad. You know, it's not Americans who need help throwing a ball exactly. Um, so that, that was, that was a funny one to me. You know what that, you know what that is from Sam? That is basically, you know, cause my first three soccer coaches didn't play soccer. They were gym Mm. teachers. It was just like, they couldn't demonstrate anything. It it was just all kick and run and run two Mm -hmm. miles before practice and all that. So I think it was basically because nobody's hand eye is better than Americans. It, That's it really right. is. Mm-hmm. And because we're catching things all the time. Uh, in your case, herpes, uh, Grail. But I'm saying everybody, we you can demonstrate how to throw a ball in and someone will get it in, uh, you know, in an hour, an American player. It is different. So in the just in the school I went to in England, there was a contest at our sports day called throwing the cricket ball. And I won both years by 100 feet. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's funny you say that because I played cricket one day, like in Oxford or something, somewhere in London or outside of London and um, either Cambridge or Oxford, I forget which school, but I was throwing the ball, pitching it, mm-hmm. and I was breaking my wrist. And when you throw a cricket ball, you you can't break your wrist. That's right. And so they were like, you know, I had to adjust and try to figure it out because- no. You have to bowl it. You have to come over and you have right. to keep a straight arm. But the fact is none of them know how to throw like we do as a, as a baseball throw. So they tried to throw a cricket ball in the contest, like a hand grenade. <laughs> right. They can only throw like 50 feet. I threw like 300. I mean, right. it was like. Well, playing cricket. I, I thought was watching, you know, I was batting and I thought like you'd never get Derek Jeter out. You, know, yeah. you just gotta, you know, keep fouling it off. So, uh, all right. So, so great stuff. It was great to talk to Seamus, uh, the U S with a, uh, with a point getting out of El Salvador, uh, international break. So guys, I don't know. What are you going to do this weekend? Reintroduce yourself to your girlfriends or what are you going to do? Sunday night, Canada. That's yeah, what Sunday I'm going to do. Everything's going to count down to Sunday night, I guess. Yeah. Oh, you never Canada. get, never get too long of a break from soccer these days. No, you don't. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest on today's program, Seamus Mallon, uh, the great one. Uh, it was great to get caught up with him and, and hear all his stories. Uh, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, we'll talk to you about uh, the games on Sunday and Wednesday when we come back on Over the Ball next week. So until then, talk to you soon. <laughs>